I look at the younger generation, I, I see the future of the church. They may not have had without, like, you know, guidance or someone, you know, helping them along the way. It's really investment in others in the future. Using my gifts, my talents, what God has given me now to impact the next generation. We're a reflection of his sacrifice. And how far is that future generations gone? Giving my time to help others. When you enjoy it, it doesn't seem like a sacrifice. Where you probably would have fallen and not had someone, they're not going to fall and they're going to have someone to help them walk. We're just giving back to what God's given us and what others have poured into us. That little bit of impact that God can use me through is hopefully going to benefit them in the future. And that's just a little bit of sacrifice and how I can give. Hey, good morning, Cornerstone. We are, uh, yeah, I'm glad you're here too. All right, we're in, a, we're in a series we're calling Deep and White, and we've been just taking time uh, the last uh, few weeks to say, what type of church do we want to be, and, and what would it take to be that type of church? And, and what we've been saying to each other is, look, we want to be deep, and we want to be wide, which simply means this. We've said, look, we're, we're going to follow Jesus without apology. We're going we're gonna to face whatever discomfort that means. We're going to be obedient in whatever areas of life. Life, we're going to be obedient. We're going to study scripture so that we know how to behave and how to live for God. And look, the, the deal is, we're, we're going to do this thing till we start looking like Jesus. That when people bump into our lives, they're going to go, it's, it's like a little Jesus is in the room. Because you and I look so much like him. That's what being deep is. Deep is not how much knowledge you have. Deep is how much Jesus you live. And so we said, look, we're going to be a deep church People are going to see Jesus in the way that we live. But then we said, hey guys, we're going to be wide. You know, when, when Jesus was on this earth, people who were far from God were highly attracted to him. People came by the thousands to sit at his feet because there was something different about him. And so we've said, look, we're going to be a wide church. We're going to be a church that sits in this community and you can't help but notice that God is alive here and something is going on. And so that people who still haven't discovered God yet would be attracted to this place to come and discover him. Matter of fact, one of the things we say out loud around here is we're going to make it really, really hard to go to hell from Chandler, Arizona. From Ahwatukee, from Gilbert, yeah. So, deep and wide. Deep and wide. And that's what you and I are committed to doing together. That's, that's, that's the mission of where we're going as a church. And so for the last few weeks, we've been saying, well, to be that type of church, to be a church that really is deep and wide, what would you have to do? What would you have to believe? How would you have to behave? And so we've been having these discussions. And today we're going to talk about investing our lives, investing our church, investing our future in the next generation that's coming behind us. Here's what happens so often in churches. You get to a level of success. You get to a moment where you go, hey, what we've been doing is really, really working. And in that moment, there's a tendency to kind of sit down and say, okay, so we'll just keep doing what we're doing right now because this seems to be hitting the right uh, spot. We're scratching the right itch. But isn't it reality in this room that many of us are here 
because the churches that we came from were churches that sat down and said, it's okay for us to do church the way you did church 40 years ago because it worked 40 years ago. And they just kind of got stuck. They just kind of got satisfied with what they were doing. And what you and I have got to be incredibly careful at is that you and I don't do church 20 years from now the way that you and I are doing church today because it won't work. It'll, it'll need to be different than this if you and I are going to reach the next generation. And you and I can never be so satisfied already. You and I can never be so selfish as to say, I like how it is, so let's not change it. And part of this question, part of one of those important things that you and I will ever decide is this. Are you and I willing to sacrifice? Are you and I willing to be a little bit uncomfortable in our own church? Are you and I willing to set aside some of our own personal preferences so that the next generation can come into the room and be with us? And ready? And ultimately, if we have our way, would actually be better followers of Jesus than we were. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to sell out to get the next generation to be better followers of Christ than us? And today I just want us to take a look at a king of Israel who had a very similar moment. He had a moment in his life where he had to say, is good enough good enough? Is where we are today where we're going to be? Or am I willing to be sacrificial? Am I willing to make concessions? Am I willing to give up some of my own personal views in order to help the next generation be better? And he misses the moment. He fumbles the ball. And my hope is, is that by you and I watching this moment of error, watching a moment in which we go, how did you make such a foolish decision that you and I would be different when the decision is ours? So grab your Bibles with me today. Go with me to 2 Kings chapter 20. If you're not really familiar uh, with your Bibles this morning, if you go to the front of your Bible and start working to the right, you're going to find this book of 2 Kings. Just a clue, it's uh, right after 1 Kings. Just saying. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 20. It's, it, we're peeking into the life of a king of Israel by the name of Hezekiah. Now here's what you need to know. Up until now, this guy has been a remarkable king. Matter of fact, it's interesting. He actually begins to lead Israel when he himself is a very young man. He's 25 years of age. And one of the first things that he does as he becomes king of Israel is he, he brings revival. He says to the people, look, we're going to get rid of all the idols. We're going to get rid of all the false worship in Israel. And he literally turns the, the whole country around spiritually. That's how he begins his reign. You and I are now going to see that he does not finish as well. He gets to a point where he says, hey, I've already done what I need to do. Good enough is good enough. Change would be hard. Sacrificing for the future is uncomfortable. And he decides to live for himself and to live for now. So here it is, it's Second uh, Kings chapter 20, uh, here's what it says, starting in verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became ill, so it's the end of his life, uh, he's, he's gotten sick, and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz, went to him and said, this is what the Lord says, 
Put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Now, guys, I'm just saying you do not want that hospital call from the pastor. You do not. That is a bad hospital call. Verse 2. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what the Lord... The God of your father, David, says, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. I will heal you. Now, guys, I'm just going to, you ought to be encouraged by that moment. Because you and I serve a God who can turn around a death sentence. And there are some of us in this room, and we've gotten doctor reports. And you just need to be encouraged that prayer can change a doctor's report. Some of us in this room, and you've got a teenager in horrible rebellion, and there just seems to be absolutely no hope that they would ever turn back to God. And I'm just telling you, prayer can change the answer. Some of you are living in marriages right now, and you're just saying, my spouse will never be different. My spouse will never, there's no hope. And I'm just telling you, prayer has power. It changes what seems to be the inevitable outcome. Back to the passage. I have heard your prayers. I've seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. Verse 6, I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Now think about this moment. Here's a guy. He's on his deathbed. He knows that he's about ready to die. He prays in the most. says, God, look, please, please, I've been faithful to you. I've served you all my life. Change the answer. And God in grace, God in goodness says to Hezekiah, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you 15 more years. Now, guys, here's what you think. If that happened to you, wouldn't you just be filled with gratitude? Wouldn't you in that moment go, you know what? I, if, if the rest of my life hasn't belonged to the Lord, these last 15 years are all his. Because, I mean, I'm, I wasn't going to have these 15 years, right? And God granted them to, I, I mean, if I, if I haven't done right by God, so these last, I'm going to live the best years of my life for the kingdom, for Jesus, because I got 15 more years added. Here's the remarkable thing. Hezekiah decides to live the last 15 years of his life for himself. Go back to the passage. Skip down to verse 12. Here's what happens. At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of Hezekiah's illness. Hezekiah received the messengers and showed them all that was in his store. So think about this moment. Here's the king of a pagan country, and he hears that the king of Israel has somehow miraculously been healed. Think of the opportunity. Think of the moment. There is, a, there is just absolutely, you, you couldn't tee the ball up better for Hezekiah to say, look, 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 
our God, the God of Israel, is stronger than your pagan gods and he's better than your false gods and he healed me and gave me, I mean, what an amazing opportunity for Hezekiah to make this all about God and instead, instead, are you ready for this? He's going to make it all about him. Back to verse 13. Hezekiah received the messengers and showed them all that was in his storehouses, the silver and the gold and the spices and the fine oil, his armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all of his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, what did those men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied, they came from Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace... And all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, some of your sons and daughters, your children, your own flesh and blood that will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs. You know what a eunuch is? It's, it's a young man who is surgically not a young man anymore. This is not a happy event will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word, now get this, watch, watch, watch Hezekiah's response to this new information. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah says. It's a good plan. I like this. For he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? Isn't that interesting? Now, the first question is simply this. Why is God so ticked off? I mean, God pretty clearly says, hey, wait, Hezekiah, this was a defining moment in your life, and you mishandled it so poorly that I'm going to take everything that you've been so proud about, and I'm going to take it all away. Why is God so ticked off with Hezekiah's behavior? Two things. You ready? Because in this moment, Hezekiah is the king of it's all about me. It's all about mine. Matter of fact, go back to verse 15. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in, next word, my palace. Whoa, 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 Hezekiah. If you had died a few months ago... Would you even have access to your palace? You realize that the 15 years that God granted you should have made it crystal clear. It's not really your palace. You only live in that palace by the favor and the kindness of God. What do you mean, Hezekiah, my palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures. Hezekiah, wait, 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 wait. If you had died a few months ago, you wouldn't be spending any of it. 
The only reason that you have that asset, the only reason you have those resources, Hezekiah, is because God was gracious and spared you. Otherwise, you wouldn't even be able to touch it. What do you mean, Hezekiah? My treasure. And Hezekiah, in a moment, think about this, in a moment where he was supposed to realize this isn't about me, this is about God. And, and, and what an amazing moment to turn all this attention that's coming my way and say, no, 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 let me tell you about the God of the universe who heals sick people, who's more powerful than you. I mean, and Hezekiah, you made it all about you. Because, because, you ready? Because Hezekiah is the king of me. You get where he's struggling. He's struggling in one of the very same areas that you and I struggle in. You see, Hezekiah, and guys, don't miss the point. Hezekiah believes that he's an owner. See, he believes that all that treasure, all that glory, all that faith, that it's his. And he has missed that he's a manager, that it all really ultimately belongs to God, that it's, none of it is actually even his, and that what he should have asked, you ready? What he should have asked is, if God has given me 15 more years with all this money, with all this resource, with all this, I wonder what God is hoping I would do with the 15 years he granted me. Because, you ready, everybody? I don't own these 15 years. I don't own my palace. I don't own the treasury. I'm merely here to manage them. Some of us that have been born with amazing physical ability, we struggle with this. We think, well, you know, I mean, this is just about me being better than the rest of the people on the field. This is just about me being able to earn some amazing salary in the NFL. This is just, this is about my glory and my fame. This is about me being a top draft pick. Some of us that uh, have an incredible ability to make money. And we think, you know, this is just my good fortune. Apparently, ready for this? Apparently God loves me more than he does poor people. Because he gave me this ability that everything I touch just turns to money. And, and it's surely, you ready? It's surely all about me and it's surely mine because I earned it, right? I earned it. This is people with talent. And they think, you know what? This talent's all about my fame and it's all about me finding a stage and the spotlight coming on me and everybody buying my records. Some of us are good at adding numbers and some of us are good at mercy. I, I, don't, I don't know what it is and I don't know what capacities God has given you. Some of you, you see people hurting and you're immediately drawn to them. I don't know what it is that God has given you. But here's what I was going to tell you. It's not all about you. And you don't own it. You're not an owner, you're a manager. And just as surely as Hezekiah doesn't own those 15 years, you don't own any of it either. Because every breath you take is a gift that you did not deserve. You're not an owner. 
we are all managers, and it's not about me. It's interesting, we, uh, you guys know that we do friend day around here, and we had seen an athlete, and I'd heard that he was a Christian, and so we did some research, and sure enough, he'd, he'd made a decision for Jesus Christ, and so we made contact uh, with his agent and just said, hey, you know, we'd really like to have this person come. Could they be part of one of our friend days here? It's a chance to make Jesus famous and tell people about who God is, and, uh, and originally they agreed. They said they were coming, and then we got, a, we got a text back, and here's what it said. This athlete has decided that his faith is personal. Is that possible? Is it possible that God gave that athlete that capacity, those abilities, just for him and his fame and his glory? Is it possible that God rescued that man from eternity without him? And it's all about him? Is that? See, I'm just going to tell you, you and I have got to be really, really careful that we don't decide it's all about me. Which means, you ready for this? You and I have to begin asking the question, says, why do I live in the neighborhood I live in? See, you thought you were upgrading your house. You thought you thought you were moving from the three-bedroom to the four-bedroom and, you know, stainless steel. You thought you liked the floor. Isn't it more likely that it's not about you? Isn't it more likely that there are some people in that neighborhood who need to see Jesus in you and that God has placed you there, not for your glory and comfort, but for his fame. See, you, you've got a job, and you're thinking, you know, well, the job's all about me, right? It's all about me and providing for my own and, you know, being able to afford the vacation. I mean, that, that's, what, that's what my job's about, right? Really? It's all about you? Or is it more likely that God placed you in that job? So that as you live as a Christ follower in front of a whole bunch of people who haven't figured out God yet, they'd see something different about you. Is it possible that God gave you that job so that as you received resources, as you received payment for using your God-given gifts and talents in the marketplace, that you would be faithful in leveraging some of those gifts to the kingdom? Is it, is, is it all about me? second reason God is just frustrated out of his mind with Hezekiah is that not only is Hezekiah the king of me, he's also the king of now. He is ready and he is more than willing for his present comfort, for whatever makes him happy in the moment, to sacrifice the future, to give away his kid's legacy. He's more than happy to do that. Matter of fact, jump back into the passage, go to verse 16. Here's what it said. Then Hezekiah said, uh, then Hezekiah said, hear the word of the Lord, the time will come when everything in your palace and all of your father has stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood that will be born to you will be carried away and they will become eunuchs. How many of you would like to be one of Hezekiah's sons? Just raise your hand. I'm thinking, I like this guy as my dad. 
what I thought. And in the palace of the king of Babylon. Ready? And the word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah says. Because, because he thought. You ready? There will be peace and security in my lifetime. I mean, as long as I'm okay, who cares? Don't you just want to yell at the guy? Don't you want someone to go, what? Have you taken your hat off? This, Hezekiah, this ought to be an absolutely obvious answer. Dads don't sell out their kids. You don't give the next generation away. You do whatever you have to do on their behalf. This isn't about your comfort, Hezekiah. You're going to let the kingdom slip away? You're going to let your children be slaves? And Hezekiah says, yeah, because it's all about me and it's all about now. Years ago, I'm serving in a church in Southern California. It was interesting because I was a youth pastor in a retirement community. Now, that's a plan. I'm just telling you, that's a plan. And uh, I'm serving in this church. And it really was. It was a retirement community. What they had done and the way they had built this little town years ago was, hey, if you can't afford to retire in L.A., then what you do is you come move up here, you buy a mobile home, and you plant apple trees in your backyard and in your retirement. You know, you can bake apple pies and you know, be a good thing. And so literally just swarms of retired people came up and the town was filled with mobile home parks. And, uh, but then, over the course of time, the, kind of the L.A. swell started moving up the basin, and, and they made a decision, we don't want any of those L.A.ers here. So they invoked a building moratorium. They basically said, here's the deal, you cannot build a house here, you cannot build any new homes here, unless it's on an acre of ground. Now think about this. If you've got to build a house on an acre of ground in California, custom home, how many young families can afford to do that? And you can't. So for 20 plus years, they basically said, we don't want any young families in our community. Then came along a city council. They reversed the decision. They said, no, 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 you can start building single family homes, normal size lots. And in that moment, that community became the most affordable place to live if you were coming up out of the LA basin. And instantaneously, hundreds upon hundreds of young families, 20 to 30 years old, were moving to our town. The church that I was serving in began to swell. It just began to fill up with young families. And so here came the question. Guys, our church is run by 50 and 60-year-olds. We now are being filled up by 20 and 30-year-olds. And here's the problem. We're still doing church like we did 40 years ago. Are we going to do anything to change this? Because if we don't, we'll probably lose all these new families. Guess what the 50 and 60-year-olds decide? We like church the way it is. We like our choir robes. We ain't having no devil drums in the service. Because, are you ready for this? You ready? Because it's all about me and how I like church. And it's all about now. And who cares if those 20 and 30-year-olds don't like it? 
Can I tell you that that church, which had been running about 1,200 people, from the moment, you could mark it from the moment of that decision, went into decline. Today they run about 160. And there are buildings on that campus they don't even unlock on a Sunday. And if I walk on that campus, <laughs> when I go back for reunions, I am the child in the room. Now I'm just going to tell you, if I'm the child in the room, that's a bad day. <laughs> because the next youngest person is 70. Because, because. They decided it was all about me. And it was all about now. If you and I are going to be different, if you and I are going to be the church that says, it's not all about me and it's not all about now, and, and I'm willing, I'm willing to be a little bit uncomfortable. I'm willing to maybe even set aside some of my preferences and my likes in order to make sure that the next generation stays here. And ready for this? That because we invited them to the room, they end up being better Christians than us. Think about this, guys. Think about if you and I could land this. Think about if you and I as a church could make the right decisions to make sure that the next generation were better followers of Jesus than us. And what if they, by following your example and mine, decided to do church in a way that would make our grandchildren, the next generation, even better followers of Christ than them? Do you realize we would put America on its ear in about four generations if each generation sold out to making the next generation better followers of Jesus? than they were. So what, what are the characteristics of that type of church? What are the things that you and I have to be willing to do to be that type of a deep and wide church? Now, let me give you three real quick. First one is this. You and I have got to live with a passion that our children be better followers of Jesus than us. And here, here, not better off, better followers of Jesus. See, I think, I think all too often, guys, you and I get in a rut, and we think that our mission in parenting is to help our children be better off than we were. I'm telling you, if you do that, you will miss your call. It's about making your children better followers of Jesus than you are. See, here, here, here's what happens. Uh, you and I go down to the store to buy a swing set for our kids. And, and we go, look, you know, when I was a kid, all we had was a rope in the tree, you know, and a tire on the bottom. You know, I'm going to do something better than that for my... So we buy them the State Fair swing set. It lasts for what, like two and a half days? And then they're not even playing on it anymore. But somehow we feel better because they are better off than we were. See, our kid comes home and says, hey, there's this band trip and everybody's going over to Europe and can I go? And we remember back, remember when we were kids and, and there was a band trip and, and they did the state of Arizona, Yuma and Winslow. And, 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 and we, we, didn't, we waited too long to start saving our money and, and so we didn't get to go on the trip and we remember the disappointment and, and so we just say, no, no, I'm not going to do that for my kid. And so all of a sudden we're pulling out the charge cards and we're charging European band trip at 21% interest so our kids can be be better off than we were. 
can I tell you, I think sometimes we do more damage buying and doing everything for our kids than we do help. I look back at my time parenting my son Joshua and one of my deepest, re- I, think I, I think I bought him too much. See, I, I looked at my childhood and, and I, I said, look, I had to do without and boy, my, camp, my family was eating, you know, hand-me-down uh, groceries from the day-old store and I, I wore clothes from a neighbor kid and I thought, you know, I'll never do that and, and I didn't want my son to have to suffer because I was on a pastor's salary and so I just made sure. And can I, I, I just think my son grew up not appreciating stuff, not with a real strong work ethic. And, and I, you need to hear me, he's gotten there now. I mean, he's, he's landed these lessons now, but here's the problem, not because of me. He had to wait till he got out of my house and go learn those things the hard way because I was too busy making him better off. There's a, there's a movie, uh, it's an old, old movie, John Wayne movie, so that tells you how old I am. And, and for all of you younger people, in the, there's a channel called Turner Classic Movies, and uh, you might see it sometime. I think, I think it's called McClintock. And uh, it's John Wayne and his wife, Maureen O'Hara, uh, they've sent their daughter off to private prep school, and she's been there getting the best private education, and this has been a place of consternation in the marriage, and now she's come back. And John Wayne owns like thousands and thousands of acres. And so here comes his daughter back. She's about marrying age. And he takes her out riding on a horse. And he says to his daughter, hey, uh, there's going to be some guys buzzing around because they want all of this. And he said, here's the answer. You're not getting any of it. I'm giving it all away to charity. He said, I've got 10 acres that I've set aside for you. And he said, you know what? There's going to be people who are going to say that I did that because I didn't love you. But just the opposite is true. Because the very, very best years I had with your mother, the best years of my marriage, are when we had to scrape life together side by side. And I don't want you to miss that opportunity with your husband. See, I think, guys, sometimes you and I are so involved in trying to make our kids better off, we miss making them better followers of Jesus. And when this lands, when this part of the conversation hits for you and me, I think it brings a lot of clarity because here's, here's what happens. All of a sudden, your kid comes to you and, and, and it's karate lessons or maybe it's dance lessons, but in order for them to go, they're going to miss uh, fifth and sixth grade D groups. And you're going, wow, that's, that's a tough decision. I'm... If your goal as a parent is to make your kids better followers of Jesus and not better off, I don't think that's a hard decision at all. I think you can decide that in about two seconds. See, so your high school kid comes to you and they want a car and so they're talking about getting a job where they're going to have to work and all of a sudden that job's going to intrude on being part of youth group. If this is not about your kids being better off, if this is about your kids being better followers of Jesus, do you even need to think about that decision? And I'm just telling you that when you and I get this, it brings a ton of clarity. 
So the first thing is this, that our kids, ready, that you and I sell out to the idea that our kids will be better followers of Jesus than we were. Here's the second thing. Recognize that not all of your children are your physical children. Let me just say that again. Not all of your children are living under your roof right now. Because every one of us has spiritual children. People who are a little further behind spiritually than where you and I are. That God has placed us in their lives with the specific purpose of parenting them in Jesus. When I'm a teenager, God gave me the incredible gift of a youth pastor by the name of Wayne. And this guy poured hours into me. We'd get done with youth group and we'd go out for cups of coffee and he would just pour onto me Jesus. He would talk about scripture. He would talk about my, anything. And he poured into my life. I get to my sophomore year of high school. There's a little junior high kid. Now you got to understand our youth group was so small that we put junior high and senior high in the same room and then there were 12. Okay? So there's a little junior high kid by the name of Owen. And Owen decides he wants to be Lynn. And so he starts following me around. He starts combing his hair like I'm combing my hair. He starts wearing clothes like I'm wearing my clothes. You turn and you say, hey, do you need something? No. Now this is really, if you're a sophomore in high, this is bad. This does not help you pick up the babes. This does not help. And so finally I go to Wayne. And I said, Wayne, you got to help me. I got to tell this kid in some polite way, get lost. And Wayne looked at me with a big smile on my, his face and he said, I'm a granddad. And I said, what? He goes, no, 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 Lynn, you're missing the whole point. I have been your spiritual father. I have invested in you like a son. I have taken everything that God has taught me and I've done my best to instill it in your life. And you realize Owen is your spiritual child. That God is giving you the opportunity to take all that God has done in you and now give it to your spiritual son. And guys, I'm just telling you, not all of your spiritual children or your children are children by birth. You and I have spiritual children. Matter of fact, how many of you in here have been Christians more than 10 years? Raise your hand. Hold them up. Okay, keep it there for a second. Oh, hold them up. Look around you because everybody that's not raising their hand right now is your spiritual child. God has placed you in proximity to them. God has put you in this congregation so that you can take whatever God has placed in you and you can now place it in them that they would be better followers of Jesus than you were at their age, spiritually. So let me ask you a question. Is it all about you? Or are you investing in them? Are you teaching the small group? Are you leading our children? Are you taking someone who's struggling to coffee and saying, let me just tell you what God's done in my life. Let me, let me take what God has done in me so that you would be better than me when you get as far as me. Is it all about you? Or are you investing in the spiritual children of this congregation to be better than you were when you were their age? Not all of your children are physical. And then the third thing, 
you and I are going to be a deep and wide church who gets the next generation. And it's simply this. You and I have got to be willing to accept the discomfort of having the younger generation in the room. How many of you remember when you had your first kid? How many said, well, that was just the easiest thing? Pat, I mean, man. You, you, I mean, every bit of that was discomfort, right? They're waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning and they're pooping on every. I mean, it's just, there's nothing comfortable about having babies around. Your life changes when there are babies around. And I'm just going to tell you that if you and I are going to be a church that brings the next generation in the room and lets them be part of there is nothing comfortable about this. And part of it is just saying, look, I'm willing, I'm willing to live with the discomfort. Matter of fact, grab your Bibles real, real quick and go with me to the right if they're still open. If they're not, go right to the middle. You'll find the book of Psalms and then turn right. Go to the book of Proverbs. Psalms, then Proverbs. Probably the best verse in the whole Bible. This is just like totally cool. Proverbs chapter 14. Let, let me give you a second of background. I'm youth pastoring. And we did this big event uh, for kids. And we had just a huge crowd of teenagers show up to the event. Here's the problem. Half the teenagers are not church teenagers. So at the event, while we're waiting, because we're doing the big thing inside and made everybody stand outside, one of the kids decides to go over to a bush and pee. We, we got kids outside smoking, waiting to get into church. And we had a, a gentleman at our church who just said, okay, the church is going to hell in a handbag. Said, this is bad. We shouldn't have people like that at church. And so he goes to my senior pastor and has a meeting with him to say, look, we've we got to stop doing youth activities where those type of people come into the room. And in the midst of that, in the midst of that conversation, my senior pastor read this verse to that guy. It's the best verse in the Bible. Okay, you ready? Proverbs chapter 14. Here's what it says. Verse 4. Where there are no oxen, the manger is empty. But from the strength of an ox comes an abundant harvest. All right, let me translate because you're not getting it. <laughs> Where there are no oxen, there's no poop to clean up. But from the strength of the oxen comes an abundant harvest. You want the oxen. Everything's better for having the oxen. And what he was saying to that gentleman is, hey, if we don't bring kids who don't know the Lord, and if we don't bring all these, these kids from the area, you're right, there wouldn't be any poop at our church. You're right. But man, we want poop. <laughs> it's worth it. It's worth the discomfort. And guys, I'm just going to say to you, it's worth the discomfort to bring the next generation in the room and say, look, do church with us. I remember years ago, we had an elder at the church, and I was sitting in an elder meeting, and I said to him, I said, you know, the way things are going, I've got a feeling eventually we may have a pastor with a tattoo. And he was like, oh, God would have to fall off his throne before that could happen. And you get, you get, you get it, and especially, you know, if you come from my generation, I mean, people in my generation who had tattoos, you were rebellious. I mean, you, you were making an anti Christian statement when you wore a tattoo and you didn't pierce things back when I was young. That was called a medical emergency. That wasn't what you did on purpose. And I understood. I understood exactly where this guy was coming from. But guys, 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 guys. Think how different our church would be 
if we'd never included a Tim Beal. Think, think what we would have missed if we'd never had a Brian Rizzell. Think, think of the mistake of not having an Aaron McRae or a Ryan Axtell in the room. And guys, I'm just telling you, whatever poop comes along with it, <laughs> no, no matter how fuzzy these guys get, it's worth it to change the next generation. Now, guys, we've been talking, you and I do this pretty darn well. Matter of fact, this is, the, we've talked about, this is, this is more in the way of review than anything else. Matter of fact, I get the opportunity to go out and talk to churches all over the place that have not included young people in their services. And when I do, I brag about you guys. Because you realize we've got a lot of people in this church that are, that are older who come to this church, and I'm just going to, just be honest, they, they walk in and they go, this is not my music. <laughs> you know, I, 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 you get it, right? And why are they here? Why are they willing to come and be uncomfortable to sit in this room? And here's what I tell these other churches. Here's what the people of more experience believe about uh, here's why they come in the room. They come in the room because here's what they figured out. If we do church for 60-year-olds, guess who's going to come to church? 60-year-olds. And the moment we do that, guess who doesn't come to church? Their children. Which means they can be comfortable and they can be happy and they can be content and they can be the kings of me and now but they'll exclude their own children from the service. And maybe more importantly, they'll exclude their grandchildren. And what they're willing to trade is their comfort. They're willing to set on the altar of sacrifice their preference in order to sit in church with their own kids and be able to go to lunch afterwards and say, man, what did God teach you today? and to be able to leverage their experience and their life into the lives of their children and not leave that to someone else. That's why they sit in the room. All right, so I'm going to do something really weird. If you're 60 years old or older, stand up. Stand up. 60 years old or older. You get these guys are living today's message right in front of us. Let's pray. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, we get it. We can never be the church of me and now. And God, I just ask, I ask for some of us that are a little bit younger in this room that we would see the example. <laughs> we would see the moment of these who stood and said, look, I'm willing <laughs> I'm willing to be in a service that's not exactly designed and tailored for me. I'm willing to be there so I can watch what God is doing. And this isn't about me, and it's not about now. It's about my children, both physical and spiritual, being better followers of Jesus than I was. It's about being committed 
to the next generation. God, may we always be that church. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.